This is West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support is provided by the Marion County Convention and Visitors Bureau, presenting Prickett's Fork Tours and demonstrations of Colonial Christmas recipes cooked over an open hearth on December 2nd. Full event schedule at MarionCVB.com. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at AmazonBusiness.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at Fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. Today is Halloween, and we wanted to offer a spooky story to get you in the mood. Little children see monsters that adults refuse to. Little children learn fear. Little children learn to trust the feeling of cold, dark evil and let themselves be warned by it. It's only when we get older that some of us choose to forget. That spooky tale and more coming up on this West Virginia Morning. The Allegheny Front, based in Pittsburgh, is a public radio program that reports on environmental issues in the region. Here's their latest story on the 50th anniversary of the Clean Water Act and the challenges it is currently facing. This month marks the 50th anniversary of the Clean Water Act, but its future authority is uncertain. This is the Allegheny Front Environment Update. I'm Carol Holsapel. The landmark legislation passed by Congress in 1972 established regulations that brought polluted waters like Lake Erie back to life, says Jim Murphy, director of legal advocacy for the National Wildlife Federation. But a case now before the Supreme Court challenges the scope of the Clean Water Act, Sackett v. EPA. At issue is which bodies of water should receive federal protection. The plaintiffs are a couple who bought a residential property in Idaho that's essentially a wetland and want to fill it in with sand and gravel. I asked Murphy what they're arguing. So they're effectively arguing that this uh, wetland is not protected by the Clean Water Act. And their argument is that the Clean Water Act is really supposed to be very limited in scope to kind of major bodies of water and wetland areas that immediately abut those. That is in plain contradiction with what Congress intended when it passed the Clean Water Act. Congress understood that water flows downhill and that small streams and wetlands on the upper reaches of watersheds play a hugely important role in protecting the health of downstream waters. From your perspective, what's at stake if the plaintiffs do win? Uh, I think what's at stake is whether the Clean Water Act will continue to be an effective law that protects our health and safety and our drinking water supplies, wildlife habitat. Wetlands are really, they're both the kidneys and the sponges of, you know, watersheds really almost operate like a system. In fact, they do operate like a system. What wetlands do is store water during storm events so you don't get flooding. Flooding creates pollution by scouring dirt and, and also by carrying pollutants from the surface into waterways. So they hold that water during times of precipitation and snow melt. Then they also, you know, slowly release that water. And while they release that water, they also filter it and clean it. So wetlands really, they, they keep the water on the landscape and they allow it to be released slowly into streams and rivers. When you fill them in and pave them over, 
you lose all those really important functions in terms of keeping waters clean. Uh, you know, and small streams do a lot of uh, similar things. And they both provide an immense amount of habitat, you know, because one of the reasons the Clean Water Act was passed was to also protect the biological integrity of our waters. This is a conservative court. It may likely go towards the plaintiff. So what would be the plan B to protect streams and wetlands? Yeah, I, I think there's kind of three possible avenues. One, depending on what the ruling is, you know, hopefully the court leaves as much room for the current agencies to regulate as possible. You know, the real fix, I think, is with Congress. If the court rules that Congress did not intend for these waters to be protected, you know, obviously we think that's the wrong ruling, but unfortunately it would be the ruling of the court. Congress could go back and make very clear that these waters are waters that it intends to protect. You know, the third avenue is to continue to push states to step in and fill the void in the meantime. You know, the obvious downfall of that is, is some states, you know, don't have the money and resources to do that. A lot of states don't have the political will to do that. And then you also have the problem without a, a federal floor of protections that you can build on, you get a situations where because waterways are connected, uh, one state that might really want to step up and protect its waters is still going to be receiving the pollution from its, its neighbor that, that may not be as concerned. Jim Murphy is Director of Legal Advocacy at the National Wildlife Federation. There's more on the Clean Water Act at 50 at AlleghenyFront.org. That's the Allegheny Front Environment Update. I'm Carol Holsapel. The Allegheny Front is based in Pittsburgh and reports on regional environmental news. This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. It's 749. Rain and thunderstorms today with highs in the 50s and 60s. Tonight, a chance of rain, lows in the 40s and 50s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy skies with a chance of rain, highs in the 60s. Support for the weather forecast is provided by the attorneys at Taurus Save Law, representing firefighters, police officers, and West Virginia families. Information at TaurusSaveAlaw.com. And by ZMM Architects and Engineers, an integrated design firm providing professional services throughout the Mountain State. Our work is visible in West Virginia communities every day. ZMM.com. For Halloween, we offer up this spooky tale to get you in the mood for Halloween. Author and playwright Dan Cady is director of Contemporary Youth Arts Company Theater in Charleston. He recorded this story for us with Eclectopia host Jim Lang's help. It's up to you to figure out if it's true or not. Little children see monsters that adults refuse to. Little children learn fear. Little children learn to trust the feeling of cold, dark evil and let themselves be warned by it. It's only when we get older that some of us choose to forget. But I remember. When you were a child, was there a place that frightened you? Yeah, that evil place that spooked you even outside the door? That set your inside screaming, don't make me go in there, don't make me go in there. Maybe it was a room in your basement, the old shed in the backyard or under the bed. You know those places. And no one but you ever understood what scared you so. 
For me, it was the bedroom closet, the long, deep, dark, dead-end closet, the doorway to which was on the far wall past my older brother's bed, beside the window that overlooked the porch roof and the birch tree beyond. There was something in there, something beyond dead, beyond life, something in that world. The bedroom I shared with my brother was on the second floor of an old post-Victorian foursquare on a hillside in northern New Jersey. Built by a Russian nobleman in 1915, it had been abandoned after the market crash in 29 and stood vacant, windowless, and abused for seven years until my father bought it and did the necessary repairs to make it livable and moved in as young family. Oh, there were the obligatory rumors about the Russian count, how he lived, how he disappeared, and curiously, how he'd kill any neighborhood dog who'd come on the property. Since I was born a full 15 years after we moved in, these were only distant legends to me. But the thing in the closet, the guy in the closet, was real. I was four years old the first night he visited. Four years old, November 1955, and I remembered as if it were yesterday. Seen the darkness fell early back then. Bedtime for me, the youngest, was at 7.30, and there was a full hour and a half I lay alone in that cold upstairs room until my brother came to bed at nine. It was the coldest night of the fall, starless, moonless, but for that dull gray luminescence that always preceded a darkening storm. There was something wrong with being in bed that night, in that room alone. Kids feel that discomfort more acutely than adults, and I already felt it moments after I was left there, even with the bedroom door left open a crack to send a stream of reassuring light across my quilt. There was something wrong. I shouldn't be there. Yet it was hours later, long after my brother had come in and gone to sleep and my parents had settled down, that I found out why. It was then that I awoke to see the closet door. That closet door slowly began to open, silhouetted against the deep gray sky in the window just beyond my brother's bed. The closet door was opening. The floorboards creaked. A footstep? And then we are faced with moments in our childhood which we as adults steadfastly refuse to believe ever happened. The shadow that crossed in front of the window could not have happened. The thing that crept around my brother's bed that night and slowly made its way towards me could not have ever existed. It was a dream, an hallucination, a figment of a child's overactive imagination. It could not have been real. And when it got to the foot of my bed and when he grabbed the corner of my mattress, I felt his weight on the corner of my bed. That never could have happened. I know that. And yet something made me pull myself up against the wall behind me and scream, get away from me, get away from me, help me, help me, over and over again until my brother woke up. Go back to sleep. It was just a bad dream. Turn on the light. Turn on the light. And he was gone, at least for the moment. But a few nights later, he was back, only closer. He stood beside me now, his hand reached down, pulling my hair. I screamed again and reached up to pull his hand away. Get away from me! Get away from me! But he wouldn't let go. Get away from me! I tried to pull his hand away, and I felt it. Icy, cold, leathery, with a smell. It was a sickening mixture of alcohol and cloves and cinnamon. Almost like Christmas cookies or old rum cake. Get away from me! Get away from me! He returned dozens of times over the next five years. 
Sometimes he pulled my covers, sometimes my hair. Other times he'd shake my bed until I woke up. After the first few times, my folks started to spank me for making noise in the middle of the night, and so I learned to stay quiet and bury my head under my quilts and my pillows and hold on tightly to keep him from pulling my covers off. I never wanted to touch him again or smell that smell. Do you smell that? Go back to sleep. You're just going to get us in trouble again. And he'd be gone. But if something like this has ever happened to you, if you were one of us, then you know that he was never, ever really gone. That the evil and the cold and the darkness and the memory of that smell not only lingered all night long, but for most of us, for the rest of our lives, hidden in the bad dreams and nightmares, even of old men like me. When I was nine years old, we moved into a brand new house, ghost free. But of all the hauntings I've researched or experienced over the years, I've never fully researched the man in the closet, mainly because I didn't want to risk conjuring him up after so long. Was he the ghost of the Count? I don't know. I don't need to relive the many, many times he'd push open the closet door as my brother lay sleeping, make his way across the bedroom floor to me. The countless nights I put my head deep under the covers and prayed be gone when morning finally came. But I still have nightmares from him. I still scream, get away from me, get away from me, help me, over and over again until my wife wakes me up. And I still feel him on the foot of my bed. And still I'll shudder as a hint of that sickly odor passes over me. Those things haven't left me. And in those dark, evil places that I've gone in my lifetime since, I hear myself saying those warnings I learned so well as a child. Don't go in there. Don't make me go in there. Turn on the light. Turn on the light. For the record, the house still stands, now fully modernized, renovated, and expanded. What I thought was a mansion back then really is one now. On our last visit to New Jersey several years ago, my brother and I visited the old house and even went up to our old bedroom. It looks nice. The closet's still there. And as I stood before that closet door, 65 years later, those warnings returned. And a hint, just a hint of whiskey and cloves and cinnamon. He will haunt me forever. Happy Halloween! West Virginia Morning is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting, which is solely responsible for its content. You can keep up with the latest West Virginia news throughout the day on our website, wvpublic.org. Support for our news bureaus comes from West Virginia University, Concord University, and Shepherd University. West Virginia Morning is produced with help from Amelia Nicely, Bill Lynch, Caroline McGregor, Curtis Tate, Chris Schultz, Eric Douglas, Jessica Lilly, Liz McCormick, Randy Yowie, and Shepard Snyder. Eric Douglas is our news director, and he produced today's show. I'm your host, Teresa Wills. This is West Virginia Morning. <laughs>